I know exactly what's going to be coming to me annually. And I also know what kind of amortization for savings will be building up in the property and unlocked upon a capital event, whether that's a refinance or a sale. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by ecospace.com. Now here's your hosts, Adam and Jason. Welcome to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host, Jason J. Lou Lewis. Today, I'm excited as we are getting to dive into the world of passive real estate investing. Over the few years, 500 plus episodes we've had, we've, we've dove into this topic a couple of times, but I don't think it's it's been as important in the past as it is today, simply because someone with twenty-five dollars or $50,000 to invest they simply can't afford to buy a rental. The market has gone so crazy and the bidding wars have gone so crazy that we have clients on almost a daily basis say, I want to invest, but I can't. I don't have the time to this bidding war and I don't have enough down payment to justify today's rental prices. So that is where passive real estate investing comes in as an awesome option. And my guest today, Tyler Ellick, He's a partner in Brickwell. They are a syndication real estate investing company based in Denver, Colorado, and they invest in a really cool, unique niche strategy that they found that over the years has worked really well. And I'm excited because not only myself do I invest in some of their products, I'm a partner in some of their stuff, but I also have a lot of our clients now that are taking that 25, 50, 100K they're tired, they're beat up with the rental market, and now they're putting it with groups like Tyler and other passive investors or syndication companies as a passive investment. So Tyler, welcome on the show. If you wouldn't mind giving us a couple quick seconds uh, background of, of your history and what, what Brickwell is and what your guys' focus is. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation today. And I've been in the real estate largely development world, worked on over a billion and a half of real estate in place and constructed value for larger corporations such as a Forest City Realty Trust, Next Metro Communities, et cetera. And on the side, uh, have also passively invested in other sponsors. That's kind of how I had my entry point to understanding the investment side of the business. From there, syndicated some small investments on the side, uh, including some you know, low, high, mixed-use buildings that, you know, Jason, you passively invested in, some trailer parks in the mountains, as well as some additional multifamily in Brickwell with a, a couple other partners and myself represents kind of the culmination of all those efforts as we focus on really ESG-driven assets, assets where we can buy with value and create further value through improving resource management, utility expenses, and operations, uh, as well as ground-up development, really with, with a conscience for the same degree of resource management and operations, all while you know maximizing investor returns and adapting to you know an ever-changing environment that is what real estate has historically been and. You know, continues to be what makes it exciting. That's awesome. I really appreciate that. Looking forward to uh, diving in a little bit more on the passive side here in today's episode. Why you have it or having you on today 
And as kind of mentioned, it is what happens multiple times a week is someone says, Hey, Jason, I want to buy a rental. And it's in state here in Denver, out of state, Kansas City or Texas or wherever friends connections of mine. They're like, I want to buy a rental. And we'll schedule a call. And then the first question is how much do you have to invest? And most of the time they'll have anywhere from 25 to 100,000 to buy. Five years ago, that would have bought you a decent quality rental in almost any market. Even here in Denver, we could have found you like a two bed, one bath or something. That's no longer the case. Twenty, Sadly, 25, 50K will not buy you anything here in Denver that's that's worth buying. So what we've had to do is figure out a way for these individuals to still stay in the market and be able to invest in a quality product, quality property, and make sure that their dollar that's sitting there in their account, they're wanting to invest, doesn't get eroded with the crazy inflation that's going on. So Tyler is a passive real estate investor. He runs syndications, and I'm going to have him dive into telling us what that is, because that is an option for people to invest 25 to 100K into great assets passively. So Tyler, talk to us about the passive option that people might have in today's crazy market. Yeah. I mean, this option was an entry point for myself, even you know, decade and a half ago when I was getting started in the real estate business, working actively in development for large corporations. So that was my day job and salary. But yeah, I was saving up what was very significant amounts of, of money at the time for me in savings, but was still you know, not enough for a full-time active investment in a rental. And so maybe that's a 25000 50000 whatever that chunk of money is. It's a, it's a material piece of savings. And what I found through the industry, through my relationships, and, and ultimately through my primary vocation and day job was the ability to invest as a limited partner, an LP investor or a passive investor. The beauty of that is the sponsor of the deal, the general partner is finding the asset, they're running the asset, they're sending out quarterly distributions and reports, which all enabled me, one, an entry into larger assets, say 300 unit multifamily buildings that are diversified in their own way, it allowed me an entry point into those assets. And it also allowed me a path to learn and grow and scale alongside, you know, and, and observe how these assets operate, how the professionals report and run these assets and, and what typical even expenses look like or the ups and downs that they face would show up in reporting and would show up in, you know, my quarterly distributions. And also, you know, the, the beauty of it is also the sales or refinance events. I was able to understand and see firsthand, you know, without risking the entire equity check out of my own bank account. So the word passive versus active comes into play here in the sense that you are passively investing in real estate deals, more like kind of the stock market per se, where, where you are buying a stock and that CEO, that board of directors, they're making the decisions to manage on a day-to-day basis that company. You are kind of betting on them or investing more say in them and the company um, versus you having to go out and actively start your own company and have all the headaches and hassle. So in a real estate sense, this is one of those options where you get to invest in 
someone like Tyler and his team and the property or properties that they're acquiring and passively get to enjoy the success that they get to enjoy as well. So what might cause people to go passive over active and especially in today's market? What are the say the top three reasons, Tyler, that you say that someone comes to you and say, Hey, I got 50K, I want to put it in one of your properties versus them go buy their own. Yeah. So I think, you know, we touched on the entry pi- entry price is more palatable from the get-go. Also, you are able to learn from professionals who are overseeing property management companies with, you know, on-site individuals, as well as the diversification that's inherent to the assets. So if I have one rental and that unit goes vacant for two months, you know, that's a material hit to my annual revenue and therefore annual profit. If I have 300 units and one of them or 10 of them or even 30 of them, let's say, are vacant, there's the ability to absorb that churn and offset the risk with the diversity of the asset itself uh, in having multiple units, as well as the economies of scale in operating multiple units. So, you know, whether it's fixes and system and infrastructure upgrades or the asset itself, being able to buy bulk execute in bulk creates advantages. I think one thing that's worth understanding is when investing passively, you're still considered an owner from a tax standpoint. So some of the most powerful components of of real estate are the after-tax advantages, whether that be advantage based on uh, writing off mortgage interest that exists in the tax code, accelerating depreciation, all of those things pass through to you as an investor, which make that quarterly distribution you know, a very advantageous tax rate, usually in the single digits, when offset by those tax advantages. So as opposed to equity or other types of investment, the after-tax scenario is also very much worth considering when investing passively, and you get to enjoy some of those same benefits as if it were your personal rental but with a much larger scale in both operations, management, and you know, the ability to learn from how that sponsor navigates you know, that asset through the market at whatever particular time it is. You know, as, of, as of late, we've seen in the past couple of years, we've seen rates fall to historically very low levels. And so a lot of sponsors have been choosing to sell because they're seeing their year 10 returns realized today in year three. You know, that's a sponsor decision. That- so if that happens, Tyler, let's say someone does invest and they sell in year three when the initial plan was for someone to to invest and that money be working for them for seven or 10 years. So what, what happens in that situation? It's kind of, that it sounds like, you know, let's compare it to stock where a company is bought out and you are forced to, essentially they buy the stock and you're forced to sell in a sense. So then you have that, that cash, even though you didn't plan on doing, is that something similar you're saying happens here passively? Yeah. So that can happen and passively. It is the sponsor's choice to do so and utilize their expertise and assessment of the current market opportunities and what they see of the future. So that that's worth considering. You know, what we, what we saw recently was a lot of refinancings, where in many instances, you know, I was passively invested in a deal, 
we got 180% of our money back and still own the asset. So, you know, a refinance and because we're taking on additional debt and returning initial equity, you know, the the tax on that is de minimis. So, you know, the refinance is a huge tool kind of in, in any real estate owner's toolkit that in our incredibly low interest rate environment, you know, until March 15th, where, you know, the Fed's starting to choose to move things, the refinance has been very well utilized. Upon sale, you know, there's a there's a few advantages that are worth considering. The 1031 exchange is one that's discussed a lot, which is the ability to exchange into a like-kind property within a certain window of identification. Many sponsors really make this a huge component of the service that they provide to passive investors because rolling tax-free you know, all of a sudden, say you your hundred thousand dollar basis is now worth two hundred fifty. Well, if you reduce that by you know long term capital gains, if you hold the asset for over a year, which is already an advantage to the equities market or short term capital gains or ordinary income brackets. So that's federally roughly twenty percent plus in some areas state taxes. So let's just call it twenty five percent. So. If your 250 grand rolls forward as a 1031 exchange, you're then able to make that cash flow on that full $250,000. If you choose to take the cash off the table, long-term cap gain, some state tax, let's say that's $200,000. You're now on that $200,000, you know, let's say your 1031 property is earning a 10%, you know, cash on cash annually. So that $25,000 would have to be a 12.5% return on the after-tax scenario where you didn't utilize the 1031 on the 200,000. So you're effectively able to roll your principal over and over, and in doing so, increase your cash flow in a significant manner every time you do roll utilizing that 1031 exchange. That's great. So essentially kind of a compounding interest type of deal. You're putting your initial investment plus what you've earned all to use versus just taking some off the table and making money on that that delta. Yeah, it's a way of amplifying your principal. I think the beauty of real estate is the cash flow component. Um, I think, at least personally, that's what drew me to the asset class. I love January, April, July. You know, following the prior quarter, where you do get your quarterly distributions and reports, and I think psychologically. It's reward, it drives rewards. And I've invested in equities and, and other things, but watching something grow, but only realizing any version of reward when I sell takes a lot of patience and a lot of discipline. And I applaud it. The nice thing about real estate is you still have that principal growth over time. So, you know, from that entry point to that eventual sale, let's say it's a 2X in six years or whatever it may be. You know, that's roughly a 12% annualized return of the principal growth. But along those six years, if you're investing in cash flowing assets, you're also able to have, you know, quarterly rewards, which to me, I found, you know, sometimes it's nice just flush fund or, or money here and there. And sometimes it's material that goes toward living expenses. But I see it as both a powerful tool when it comes to lifestyle as well as a psychological reward along the trail of, you know, holding an investment for seven years. For sure. It's a diversification tool along with stocks and 
in other real estate. If you have your home, you have a rental or rentals, you have a vacation, short-term rental property somewhere. Even myself, I have multiple passive investments elsewhere and they're just an overall diversification and they they allow me to to have a lot of income from a different a lot of different sources so in case an 08 hits i'm a little more secure than i am if i just had all my eggs in one single rental basket so but let's cuz we we want to dive into the the passive itself and kind of just the exact kind of pros and cons some of the best ways to do that is walking through an example the one problem we have here with with that is syndications are SEC regulated investments. So Tyler can't come in and promote any of the ones or talk about any of the ones that he has currently, but he can dive in a little bit example of maybe some returns or expectations of past ones. And then what we can do is probably follow up. He'll put in the show notes, you know, his information and maybe a most likely has a Zoom call or something scheduled for current assets that he's that he has available for passive investing. So walk us through in a kind of a short little time frame an example of what 25K looked like and got a person on a prior investment. Sure. And I think we're in a unique time with a raising rate environment. There's geopolitical issues. And and I'll speak historically, which I had the chance to experience your 08 through 10 re- correction, mm-hmm. in which you know a lot of sponsors bought assets for incredibly low value or low bases and saw this amazing economic expansion over the past 10 years. So, you know, I'll speak historically, understanding that we're all projecting and anticipating and navigating and speculating about the future. But typically, you know, say a $25,000 investment, actually, let's just make it a hundred thousand just to make the math easy. For sure. Uh, if, you, if you don't mind, but more or less the process would look something like this. You know, whether you find a sponsor through a relationship or whatever avenue, a sponsor will offer an overview of the deal, sometimes called investment offering, offering memorandum. They, they go by a variety of names. That kind of Let's you know how old the asset is, where it's located. If you want to go see it, you can go see it. Usually an overview of kind of the competitive subset. So, you know, my focus is generally multifamily apartment buildings. So what are the local competitors in the area? What's the market look like? You know, is this, is there diverse employment? Is there a large population? It answers kind of the general questions around that investment itself. And in this instance, we're talking about direct investment. There are also guys who raise funds on certain concepts or thesis and deploy it over time. We're just going to set that aside for now and talk about direct investing. So you get to look at this asset and say, whatever that amount is, usually there's some sort of a minimum and maybe a maximum. And that's really up to the sponsor as well as the type of debt they're looking at. And that debt strategy is usually either has been secured or at least there's parameters around it because what they're doing is projecting a hold period and they're projecting how they're going to operate that asset. And that's really where an expert sponsor shows shows their cards is based on their assumptions. You know, what kind of rent growth are we projecting? Are we going to be doing a value add to pop rents based on XYZ and change finishes? Are we going to keep it in place and operate it as is? Are we going to work on expenses from uh, whatever line item 
strategy they have. So every sponsor kind of has their own approach to projecting the future of how they're going to operate that asset. It's not a promise, but it's a statement of this is what we foresee and these are our objectives, you know, and this is essentially going to define our forward-looking budgets. So on, on that, year, just to, to make mm-hmm. sure that the investor has, they want to make sure that they are investing in an asset class that they feel comfortable and somewhat maybe knowledgeable in, as well as even within that asset class, then a strategy, whether it's the value add play, it's the stabilized long-term hold play that a sponsor, a GP who's running the deal is investing in the asset class and the strategy that they ultimately feel the most comfortable with. They is a, that investor. So that's step one, it sounds like. Yeah, as well as, yeah. So the asset itself, the strategy, which is largely driven by the sponsor, whether that's yep. someone they know, their track record, someone they trust, there's a wide range of strategies yep. and sponsors in the business. And I would say debt is also a huge component of that. You know, is it fixed rate Fannie Freddie agency debt? Is it floating rate debt? Is it CMBS? Like there's there's a variety of ways that debt can create risk. And that's one of the primary drivers of risk in all types of real estate. That's what we saw in 08 mm-hmm. uh, was, was the appetite for debt was greater than the ability to perform. So those will that will generally be outlined in that projection is called the pro forma. So that pro forma is kind of the key tool that a sponsor utilizes from a math standpoint to project returns. And, you know, basically you have revenue, less expenses, which creates net operating income. That'd be the corporate, you know, equities equivalent to EBITDA. After that, you have reserves, which is kind of reserving for large CapEx items, such as fixing a roof, repaving a parking lot, et cetera, debt service, and then maybe any additional deal level fees, whether it be an asset management fee or some sort of fee at that deal level, which then results in a cash on cash return. And a cash on cash return is an annual look. So it's an annualized number that's looking at, okay, if it's a 6% on a hundred grand, you know, six grand a year, I can expect to come to me personally as an investor on my hundred thousand dollars. So that's, that's cash on cash return. There's a few ways that that can be, that I've seen it projected. One is a current cash on cash return. And one also includes if the loan's an amortizing loan with amortization. Um, what that means is you're building equity by reducing the debt amount, but you're not necessarily seeing that amortization component as a distribution. And I think being sensitive to a current cash on cash and a cash on cash with amortization is just a good way to set expectations such that I know exactly what's going to be coming to me annually. And I also know what kind of amortization forced savings will be building up in the property and unlocked upon a capital event, whether that's a refinance or a sale. So that's some of the key metrics. Go ahead. So they've got the asset class. They figured that out. They now find a sponsor who is looking for that type of strategy that they want in it. They've identified a property. Now they are talking to that that one sponsor and looking at cash on cash. They're looking at pro forma. They're looking at projections. And a lot of this stuff is over their head. 
you know, they got to now this point, they like multifamily, they like value add multifamily where you're $800, you're going to renovate and then you push it to 1200. They like that strategy. They believe in it. And then they start seeing these pro formas and this cash on cash with amortization and ROIs and NOIs and all these acronyms. And whoa, this, this is a lot. So where does that investor, what can they do at that point? Because you know, at this point, they're they're now in the nitty gritty. They are underwriting an asset in a sense, and they're trying to just put twenty five k or fifty hundred to invest to learn and to get in the game. And they're super busy. They're a doctor, a CEO, making a million bucks, hundred grand, whatever it is. They don't have time to invest actively, so they might not have time to invest to learn all of this stuff you're talking about. So, what do they do there? So, so I would say the key metrics are in some of those return projections, but I think understanding that there is inherent risk to the future and that these are projections and not promises, you know, is part of making any investment that's speculative about the future. And and in, in this instance, that's exactly what a pro forma is. The key, I'd say the key metrics to look at in the most simple manner is an equity multiple and a cash on cash. Your equity multiple considers some sort of a projected sale, and there's a variety of ways of projecting that sale, but we, we don't need to get too far nope. into that detail. But say that equity multiple is a 2x. Well, that means I put in $100,000, I'm getting $200,000 in that six-year time period or whatever that hold period is projected to be. That multiple would include the cash flow through the operations for those six years in this instance, as well as that final sale amount. And that multiple is also net of all fees, anything, you know, if stated accurately, it should be a true net number. So I think to me, that's the best first smell test is dollars in total dollars out. Great. So Um, you got, you got a two point, what's an average one that you would say today in a multifamily ballpark, you know, just guess, not really guessing, but what if you were to take 20 of them, what would be your estimate on what the average multiple that an investor might might see on a pro forma? So it's certainly a range, which is yep, based on sure. risk profile. If yep. I'm buying a tower in Denver that's low risk, that's a core asset, it's probably we're probably paying a higher price and it's going to be a lower multiple. If I'm buying trailer parks in the mountains. You know, that's higher risk and it's higher return profile and therefore higher multiple. So I would say in general, that one eight to two two over somewhere between a five to seven year hold. Um, Perfect. So one eight to two point two. They see that, they like the asset class, they like the the sponsor. What's the other one? Cash on cash. What's a ballpark expectation that you would think that someone range-wise should see in a cash on cash. Yeah. And this is this has changed over the past 15 years as real estate has become a more efficient investment and more capital is chasing it. But I would say somewhere between five and 10% of that current cash on cash. In many instances, the first year or two, the first year or two will be some sort of a rampant period to a stabilized year. And I like to see that stabilization somewhere between six to eight. That way 
I know kind of what annual coupon I'm clipping and, and more or less what my quarterly distributions look like, you know, okay. at the 6% level on a hundred grand, that's 1500 bucks a quarter, you know, at 8% level, you're talking $2,000 a quarter. So it's a nice way to just say, what kind of cash flow will I be seeing at stabilization? And normally there's that rampant period because the sponsor is buying the asset for a reason. And usually that reason is I can do something that isn't being done today to operate it better. And, and there's a variety of ways of doing that, whether it's, you know, like we said, improving rents through changing finishes and moving top line, being more efficient on the expense side, putting in XYZ to bring that asset to a point where I feel it should be operating at, but that takes time. Okay. So six to 8% stock market historically, I think the average is 7.6%, give or take 7% is kind of their average return. So you would expect an investment or someone might want to expect investment to hit kind of around what the standard stock market's return, but you have a physical asset that you're attached to. And then you have some other advantages of tax savings and that's included. Yeah. And that's actually, you know, the after-tax, there's a differentiation between the after-tax numbers between the two based on real estate advantages. And that's also when you're talking stock market growth, a principal appreciation component. So, you know, if I'm getting a 2X in six years, that's a 12% compounded growth on my principal. Whereas this distribution is actually on top of that growth number. So that growth is happening as the asset value improves, but those distributions are happening like dividend payments in the stock market and real estate tends to outperform from a just pure dividend standpoint as well. That's great. I mean, we could spend weeks on passive investing and the pros and cons and the different ways to do it. And that's the wonderful thing with real estate is there's active, there's passive. And within those, there's hundreds and thousands of different ways to go about it. So I think this is a good first step to kind of get people that are maybe interested in the passive to, to learn a little bit. What's the best way that if someone wants to reach out to you, dive in more, maybe learn a little bit more, What what's some tips that you would suggest on them maybe learning elsewhere? And then what's the best way they can reach reach out to you? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you'll put my contact in the call notes. And, you know, I, I'm always happy to share what I've learned. And part of it is testing in the small to, to perform in the larger instances and, and see how things play out. But, you know, I think there's a variety of ways to approach the real estate game and everyone kind of has their own flavor and, and you can find resources through yourself online. And, you know, I personally actually went to school, you know, further education for kind of real estate investing to understand the math. So, so there's a variety of paths to take. Feel free to email me. And yeah. I don't know if you want me to say the email or not, or, or how that all works. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll throw that. Yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll throw it in the show notes. Sometimes people say it. Sometimes we'll throw it in the show notes, whatever you feel comfortable. So we'll go put that in the show notes. And we'll, we'll honestly, I'd like to do some more follow-up with this, the passive option, because myself, personally, I get so many people with that 25 or 50K and it's really difficult to almost impossible to, to invest actively with that amount in today's crazy market. So I think passive is a great option in today's 
real estate market. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great way to be involved in something bigger than yourself, see the story play out, and rely on you know professional teams at the asset level, at the property level, and also offset some of the risk through being able to invest in those larger assets that are diversified, that have full-time property managers, leasing agents, on-site maintenance managers, et cetera, with the ability to not have to show up and you know unclog a sewer line at 11 p.m. on a Sunday. For sure. Well, excellent. We'll throw that in there. Um, we normally ask the final five. We take a quick break, listen to word from our sponsor, but let's go ahead and, and end it with just one question, which I think is the most important in, in most people's eyes is just where do you see the real estate market heading in the next, say in the next, next year? What's that one tidbit, unique little, little guess that you might, you might see different in a year from now than today? Yeah, I mean, I think the key driver to monthly payments is is central bank rates with the spread on top of it. So with the Fed raising uh, the Fed funds rate 25 basis points in March and indicating another 125 basis points to 175, that's going to affect payments drastically uh, from the lowest in modern economic history for U.S. debt. So what does that mean? It means if you're on floating rate, loans, you know, you're going to see an increase in that payment burden, which may create challenges for operators and, you know, may drive more people toward fixed rate debt. So maybe less frothiness or aggressive bidding wars in the future. I'd say I might be a little bit contrarian the residential market where I don't see a massive pullback with that raising rates this time around. One, because the 08 pullback was about over leverage, not cost of capital. What we'll see is an increase in cost of capital, but those leverage constraints have remained in place. And kind of in secondary to that, you know, roughly from what I've read, 30 to 35% of the market is being bought by the investment, whether it's institutional, private investors. And so that individual direct home purchaser, owner-occupant is still going to have to compete with some of the deeper pocketed groups, which I think is unique to this time around in my projection of the future. That's great. Well, Tyler, really appreciate it. Excited to have you on. Excited to follow along with your guys' journey and what you you guys have and all your awesome investments. So I really appreciate you uh, taking some time today. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Excellent. All right, listeners, as always, until next time, think outside the box. Thank you so much for listening to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. And if you got value from this episode of the podcast, please take the time to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Give us a written rating and a review. We really, really appreciate it. I'm going to let you go. But until next time, think outside the box. Think outside the box.